We're going to be looking at the world war of world views. Our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 12 verse 30, He who is not with me is against me. He who is not helping me gather scatters. Now our worldviews are this basic set of presuppositions that we hold about reality. It determines our values, it determines our principles, it guides how we live. So any worldview, not just ours, needs to answer basic questions of life. And the first question is, what is reality? Philosophers have grappled with this through the ages, and some say reality is fire, water. Some have come out with all sorts of other ideas. And of course, to us, reality is God. What is our base of knowledge? Well, for some people, the base of knowledge is majority opinion, majority vote. Uh, it could be consensus. Uh, it might be that their base of knowledge is Das Kapital and the whole Marxist manifesto. It could be the Book of Mormon. I mean, what is your basis of knowledge? What is it that you are deriving your knowledge from? Number three, how can you know what is right or wrong? Is what the Ayatollah or the Mahula, the Sheikh, the Imam says, is what the Quran says. Where do we get our determination of what's right or wrong? Huh. For the communists in China, it's the party, CCP, they determine what's right or wrong. Number four, what is man? Are we mud and molecules and motion that became monkeys and became man? Are we evolved slime? Uh, are we stardust? Uh, what is man? Is man reincarnated souls, some cosmic recycling of souls, as reincarnation once say? Uh, is man basically good or are we basically sinful? What is man? What happens to a person after death? Reincarnation, go to a better place. I mean, there's all sorts of things that people believe and have ideas of or nothing, as those characters who said they were very intelligent in Colorado in the Simple Tools of Brain Surgery video. What is the meaning of history? Well, Karl Marx says dialectical materialism, economic determinism, the whole meaning of history is the a battle over capital and over the means of production, and so he sees everything as economic. Why is there suffering and evil? Well, it's quite obvious why there's suffering and evil in the world if you were a polytheist, because the different gods are fighting one another. Now, in all seriousness, one of the oldest books in the world, uh, the Iliad and Odyssey, and uh, uh, about the war in Troy, presents the reason why there was this war on Troy is because three goddesses decided to have a beauty competition, and they picked this poor soul, Paris, to pick which of the three of them was the most beautiful of these three goddesses, one of which was Athenia, uh, and another was, uh, what, not Artemis, who's the goddess of love? Aphrodite. Aphrodite. And would you believe it, Paris chose Aphrodite. And so the other two goddesses got together to mobilize the kings of Greece to mobilize against Troy because Paris came from Troy and to destroy Troy because of the fact that Paris had the audacity to choose her competitor. I mean, why have a competition if you don't want to accept what the person says? And throughout the Iliad and Odyssey, the different gods interfere. And sometimes you get Zeus saying, you've got to hold back and he won't let them. And other times they're all involved. And sometimes Apollo is more involved and other times Aphrodite, sometimes it's Athena. And so in all seriousness, this Greek history book wants you to believe that the whole war and its rising in tides and 
the death of Hector and uh, uh, what's happened to Achilles' laws was all determined by the gods and goddesses and the conflict in the heavens between the different gods and goddesses. So that is one of the views of history. And that's an ancient civilization of Europe, Greece, that seriously wanted you to accept that it was the different polytheistic gods fighting amongst one another that led to the most famous war in history. Hindus also believe that there's hordes of gods and hundreds of millions of gods, and that's why there's a lot of conflict and suffering and evil. What is the purpose for our existence? Well, a hedonist will say, eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, it's all about me, myself, and I, my personal experience. How should we then live? How are we to order our life? According to what the party determines, the Communist Party, according to what peer pressure tells us to do, these are the nine basic questions that all worldviews need to answer. So, the Bible makes clear, number one, what is ultimate reality? God is ultimate reality. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is reality. That is the gold standard. That's the foundation. Number two, what's our basis for knowledge? God's revelation. In the past, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in and through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we know what is right or wrong? Well, we know what is right and wrong from the word of God. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Fourthly, what is man? We are created by God, but human nature is sinful, utterly depraved. There is bad in the best of us. There's evil in the best of us because we fall. But there's good even in the worst of us because... We are created by God. Fallen creation. So when you understand what man is, you understand we're depraved. When we say total depravity, it doesn't mean we're all as bad as we could be. We could all be a lot, 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 lot worse. But for the grace of God and the mercy of God and the influence of the gospel has restrained evil. If we were born and brought up in some other times in history without the influence of the gospel, without the regenerated work of the Holy Spirit, who knows how bad we would be, but it would be a lot worse than we are. So... When we say total depravity, we don't mean people are all as bad as they could be. What we mean is we're depraved, sin is affected, the fall is affected every part of us. Not just our inclinations and our attitudes, but our thinking, our reasoning, it's all been affected. So total depravity means man in his totality is affected by the fall into sin. So we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We are created by God, but we also fall in creation. So this gives the duality the balance, the conflict in human beings. And that's why you can get beauty and wonderful creativity from human beings. Handel's Messiah, Bach, all these tremendous uh, musical and artistic depictions, and then you can see the cathedral sound. But then you can get absolutely mind-boggling evil as well, and sometimes for the same people. It's because none of us sort of are exempt. We are fallen creation. Number five, what happens after death? Well, after death, we shall face eternal judgment. We will either enjoy God's gracious rewards in heaven or endure just punishment in hell because man is destined to die, to die once and after to face judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die and after to face judgment. Number six, what is the meaning of history? History can be his story if you perceive it the way the Bible interprets history. God is sovereign over history. 
The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And throughout history, we see the principles we see in the books of Kings and Chronicles and Jeremiah that God raises up nations and he judges them. He raises up other nations and judges them. They're given an opportunity and some kings are commended for doing good and for fighting idols and so on and others are condemned because they tolerated idolatry or perversion of the evils and so on. So you can see in history, now that does not mean that you take that the good always win and the bad always lose. That is not true. No, uh, not at all. Uh, evil has often triumphed, but as God's judgment on the wicked. God sometimes lets the wicked triumph in order to judge the wickedness of the wicked. And that's why you can see some very, very evil people might have won different wars and so on in history. That doesn't mean it gets God's approval. Just as Habakkuk was complaining, Lord, how can you use the Babylonians to judge us? They're much worse than we are. And the response is, I will judge the Babylonians. But judgment begins with the house of God. So he used the Babylonians to judge the Israelites, not because the Babylonians were better. No, they were vastly worse. But he intended to judge them in time as well. But the first thing was to train his own people. Number seven, why is there suffering and evil in the world? Suffering and evil is the result of man's rebellion against God since the fall. God created a good and perfect world without sin, without death, without suffering, without pain. Man rebelled against God, and as a result, there's suffering and there's evil in the world. That does not mean that everyone suffering deserves that suffering, but it's a composite of God's judgment on the world. So a person who suffers cancer is not necessarily to blame for getting cancer. In many cases, not. I mean, they might have been chain-smoking and gotten lung cancer as a result of bad choices. But mostly it's because we live in a sinful world and it's a result of Adam and Eve's sin and it's part of the complex of God's judgment upon mankind because of our sinful choices in nature. But there are, relatively speaking, good people who suffer because we're living in an evil world. Just as there are evil people benefiting from the inventions and the compassions of others who've been righteous. I mean, we might all be benefiting from inventions of electricity, at least when Ishkom lets us, and uh, other things in medical science of the past, that doesn't mean everyone getting the benefits of the medicine so on deserves it. It's grace. But then there's also times that we're all suffering economic downfalls and so on, even if we've got a high work ethic. So on earth we judged as nations, but in eternity we judged as individuals. So right now you might be a, relatively speaking, good person or righteous person living in a wicked society and suffering a lot of the consequences of that. You could be an extremely wicked, evil, debauched, satanic person enjoying the benefits of Christian civilization, which you don't deserve, but simply because those are the generations that built up the wonderful uh, civilizations that we're all benefiting from. So don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. What a man reaps, what a man sows, he will reap, or a man reaps what he sows. But sometimes we are benefiting from what other people sowed. Number eight, what is the purpose of our existence? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. As the final solo in the Luther Rose window frame says, soli dear gloria, which is also on the one rand coins in South Africa. We have a one rand coin in South Africa, which actually has on it this Latin scripture, uh, um, this Latin principle, scripture alone is the ultimate authority. See, I don't even have a one rand coin in my pocket. Anyway. Solidia Gloria. Number nine. 
How should we therefore live? We should live in obedience to the Bible. The Lord your God commands you this day to follow the decrees and laws and carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. So that's a quick rapid fire, the nine main questions we've got to answer. Next question. Why do we think as we do? Well, first, it's hereditary. It's a genetic makeup we have received from our parents. And sometimes you can see some characteristics which are from that family line. And sometimes it's really funny, sometimes it's a bit grievous, because when we see our children doing bad things, we can often remind ourselves, well, remember where they inherited their sinful nature from. Uh, and that should humble us. But there's both good and bad that we've received from our parents. And a lot of it's in the DNA of our makeup. And then, of course, there's our culture, the system of moral and aesthetic values in society in which we live. And so I grew up in a secular family. We never went to church. We never had the Bible. We never went to Sunday school, never had prayer or Bible reading in my home. One day before I was converted at age 17, and so I was a completely secular person, completely heathen, pagan, had no Christian uh, influence in my life whatsoever. Even though I went to schools where they sang hymns, so I knew many of the hymns off by heart, but not one spiritual concept had entered my mind whatsoever. And when I was converted and I suddenly was singing those same hymns that I knew, in fact, sometimes I knew those hymns off by heart, it was like, wow, floods of revelation and in prayer, to think I was singing these great doctrines and truths without the slightest understanding of what I was singing. Just talk about being spiritually deaf, dumb, blind, and dead. Uh, so I understand regeneration because in my life I was exposed to scripture reading and prayer and hymn singing at school, but nothing entered. I mean, it wasn't a concept, uh, not a spiritual thought that entered my mind before I was born again on the 3rd of April, 1977, at age 17. Uh, but my culture did influence me. My parents had a high work ethic. They taught me to be polite and respectful. And uh, we went to concerts, and I heard great uh, Strauss and Mozart. And that was aesthetically excellent uh, in our upbringing. We played chess. We played Monopoly. We read lots of books. And uh, I would have... Um, I knew a whole lot of our culture, but I didn't perceive the Christian value of anything beforehand. But that, of course, affected me. And we all affected by our culture. And then our family, the upbringing we received, the events and relationships in our family. My father was a hotel manager, which meant we moved a lot. I'd never really got to put down roots. When someone says, where's home? It's a little confusing, uh, at least before I uh, built my own home. And uh, we were all over the place. And I went to six different schools and... Um, that affects you, and my family affected me because there I had a father who served all six years in the Second World War in the Royal Artillery, Eighth Army, Bombardier, and a mother who was a Lindemann. She was brought up in Berlin and during the Thousand Bomber Raids, and so my grandfather fought in the Africa Corps and my father fought in the Eighth Army, and they were enemies, which made me wonder why. Why would my parents' families be on opposite sides in a brutal world war? Um, and I remember meeting my grandfather, who was my mother's father. Uh, I could never meet my English um, grandparents ever. In fact, they were so hostile to my father's marriage, they would not even let my mother, who was pregnant at the time, through the gates of their home in England. And my father went to introduce 
his bride, who was pregnant, they made her stand outside in the rain while he went inside to see his parents, who of course he was living in Africa, he only came to England on rare occasions. And you know, that kind of affected me, so never got a postcard, Christmas card, birthday card for my English grandparents. Um, but I remember meeting my German grandfather, and my brother and I were very nervous because we heard Dad and Granddad fought one another in a war. I mean, what's going to happen? We had this picture that there was going to be a, a new war in our living room. There'd, there'd, there'd be some kind of, you know, conflict. And so we were wondering what's going to happen. They embraced. Now, my dad was typical English. He did not express emotion. I mean, talk about cool, calm, and elected. There was no emotion expressed in my family whatsoever. Nothing. Uh, you know, people could die... Beloved pets could die. Nobody would cry openly. They might go behind the door, close the door, and cry on their own. But there was no emotion or comfort as a family. We were just, I mean, that's the way we had to be. But I saw my dad express such warmth and respect. I never saw him show such enthusiasm and respect for any other human being as I saw him express to my grandfather, who had been his enemy in the Africa Corps. They talked about their Christmas truce and swapping ration packs and all this, and they'd been the same battle site like El Alamein, and uh, they remember the Christmas truce in 1941-42 in North Africa, and singing carols to one another and playing football together in the no man's land, and my brother and I were just astounded, because we never saw a dad like that. Never had we saw, seen him show such respect for any other human being as he did for his former enemy. Strange things, but, you know, we all have weird families, and some strange things can happen. Um, I remember meeting my sister, my 17 years older than me sister, who was born in 1943. She was 40 years old, and I was 23 at the time. But one day, a sister I never knew I had knocked on the front door. And it uh, happened to be my mother's birthday, just like a soap opera. And uh, she had been trying to find her father. And uh, wartime romance, my dad during the war, and he didn't know that he had this child, and she tracked him down at age 40. And uh, interesting reactions. My mother wasn't thrilled. Uh, my dad was ecstatic to find he had another daughter. My other sister, who's 10 years older than me, she is delighted to have another sister. I was delighted to find I had a, another sister. My brother was furious. So, I mean, there you've got a family with all the different reactions possible. And, you know, these things affect us. Your interesting family relationships, what goes on and so on. All of us have some weird family members out there. Sometimes we're the weird family member. National political developments. I, I was brought up in Rhodesia. We were sanctioned. We were under complete sanctions, not just from Britain, but America and around the world. Couldn't play in international sports. Um, our teachers carried machine guns. We traveled on roads endangered by landmines. When we went on school outings, you'd have to be alert for the landmines um, in the roads. Uh, you, you learn very early, you don't switch on the light without first closing the curtains, you don't open the curtain without first switching off the lights, you don't go out the front door without switching off the lights behind you, you never frame yourself against light, you could be a target, especially on the farms, when you're visiting farms, just like that. And you can imagine growing up amidst landmines, ambushes, terrorist attacks, weapons everywhere, mommies pushing prams in the shops with a submachine gun over the shoulder or a revolver in the hip, like, that is normal. Didn't look strange to me. Uh, your national situation of your country, the crisis your country's gone through at times, that'll affect you. For my mother, she grew up from age six with 1,000 bomber raids, flattening Berlin, incinerating 
dismembering friends, family, seeing whole suburbs turned into disastrous areas. The first black man my mother ever saw was a Canadian soldier who was on top of her with a bayonet to her throat, threatening her at age 12. So you can imagine all the kinds of family upbringings. These affect you. Your education affects you. Not just your formal education in the classroom, but your informal education at home. You're affected by your entertainment, the music you listen to, the films you watch, the books you read, the things you do. This definitely affects you. And I read a lot of books. And I had a father who so loved films, he won the BBC National Championship on um, interviewing about films. You know, who was the scriptwriter of the 1926 remake of? And he would know it. And uh, uh, he did the same thing in Rhodesia, which was called The Generation Gap. And he won nationally on TV because he just knew all the films. In fact, he knew many of the actors. He just extraordinary. He had been a catering manager at the American Embassy in London one stage, and he had been a catering manager in the Victoria Falls Hotel. He had, in fact, catered for the royal family in 1947 during the royal tour. And uh, so I grew up hearing a lot about films and the actors and so on. And I read hordes and hordes and hordes of books. And that affects you. Your relationships affect you. Now, I can't point to friendships as when I grew up. My children are quite puzzled by this because they all had friends. I didn't have one single human friend growing up. Not one. I had lots of furry friends, lots of animal friends, lion, leopard, baby, uh, bush baby, you know. So I, I had animal friends, but I, I never had human friends. Until I was converted at age 17, then I actually had to interact with human beings, which was not as satisfying as interacting with animals, who are a lot more reasonable. My wife got that sign which is outside my office door, the more I learn about people, the more I love my cats, um, <laughs> which uh, uh, she said I'm a social retard and shouldn't be allowed to interact with human beings and so on. But uh, somehow she had the patience for me. But uh, you know, I'm not a people person, in case anyone hadn't noticed. Uh, my daughter's a people person. She can interact with people and be nice and polite. And, and that was a great thing. My wife and I we were a team because she actually liked people and she would be polite and friendly and could interact with them. And, and as a result, they'd tolerate me more and listen to my teaching because, in fact, I think many people came not to hear the teaching but for Nora's cooking. I mean, her cooking was so great and she's such a nice person. And, uh, and in that way, I was able to teach more people. So that, you know, you can get a balance that way. So relationships. I know that I've been affected by my relationships or lack of them. My main human relationships growing up was battling bullies. Ah, oh, bullies at school. Staggering. Like full-time battling bullies, part-time academic study. Uh, but my interactions with lions really affected me. I mean, I think lions are the greatest creatures on earth. Love lions. I think they're just magnificent. And uh, once you've had a lion as a friend, um, it sort of spoils you. I mean, they're the ultimate, ultimate pets. And uh, I like all cats, but uh, let's face it, lions are, they're the king. And then, of course, oh, I shouldn't skip on this too quickly. Your choice of marriage partner is after your conversion, your single most important decision you can make. I've seen people destroyed by bad decisions there, and people whose ministry has been multiplied and whose work has been made by the right decisions. So God gives the best to those who leave the choice to him. Uh, don't rush important decisions like that. 
And don't ignore the advice of people who know you better, like parents and so on. Of course, if your parents aren't Christians, then you've got to be a little bit more cautious because sometimes they would be against a good godly choice. But what I've said sounds pretty overwhelming, but can all be overruled by God's revelation, by God's grace. There are people, such as our previous speaker, Anthony Duncan, has testified, whose upbringing was one disaster, who never knew love, who was abused, who reached into the army, and he was just war and fighting, and after the army, got into crime, even armed robbery, got into prison in the worst of the worst. And there was nothing in his life that seemed redemptive, but then God, through his word, brought regeneration and redemption and restoration. He's a totally different person now because of God's grace. And they're people who've destroyed their lives. They're people who've absolutely ruined their lives. They're in the gutter. They are finished. But God can save that person and redeem them. So we should always realize that there's God's acts of grace in communicating to us through his word and his works. Which then brings the last point. Why do we think like we do? Our choices. Choices of friends, choice of media, choice of music, choice of books, choices of what websites, choices of what to do with your time, or lack of choices, which to choose not to is also to choose. I mean, that, that's also a choice. It's a bad choice, but let's, may, let's be clear. Um, everything happens for a reason. Have you heard people say that? Everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is you make bad choices and you're stupid. I mean, that's, uh, now I'm quoting John Wayne. John Wayne says, you know, life is tough. It's a lot tougher if you're stupid. Um, and uh, I mean, okay, that's John Wayne logic. But the fact is, if somebody comes up with everything happens for a reason, you could say, yes, and the reason could be you just made very bad choices. And it's true. Basically, you can summarize like this. I mean, I know everything good in my life has been the result of God's grace. Everything bad in my life has been bad choices I made. I mean, you know, it's that simple. Uh, God gets the glory and we get the blame, and that normally sums up most of the situations accurately. So, what are some of the humanist worldviews you have to deal with? Well, one is rationalism. Sounds good. Seeks to discover the structure of reality, but not guided by human reason based on God's revelation, but based on human reason alone. That's bad. That's ignoring God's revelation. There's empiricism, which is reason alone is not sufficient. You've got to base your reason only on information provided by your senses. If you can't see it, if you can't touch it, it doesn't exist. You can't see and touch love or music, peace, joy. I mean, there's a lot of very real important things in life that you can't see and touch in using empirical evidence. Appreciation of art and beauty. Um, then there's existentialism. This is probably the single most influential ideology that affects us all. This is the ideology of Hollywood. This is behind the wish upon a star, follow your heart, you know, that kind of garbage that you get from Hollywood ad nauseum. Existentialism is don't worry about history, don't worry about the future, don't worry about others. The only thing that really matters is me, myself, and I. The new trinity. Just me, myself, and I. That's existentialism. That is the philosophy of most of Hollywood. That's the philosophy of a lot of the universities today. Existentialism. Selfish and experience-orientated. And agnosticism, 
impossible to settle the primary questions of life because the limitations of human nature. Agnosticism means don't know. And it's negation of knowledge. Uh, another word for agnostic would be ignorance. And that's not being in, insulting. That's literally, it's the Greek for agnosticism. Ignorance. Don't know. But if you tell an agnostic that when he says, I don't know about God, that he's right, then he probably will get angry. So how do you evaluate anyone's worldview? Well, whether you're talking about a lecturer, a speaker, an author, a journalist, or anyone else, what is he using to interpret his facts? I can tell you a lot of people are using Marx's manifesto or Darwin's Origin of Species. Number two, what are his fundamental beliefs about life? Like if they just believe that you evolved slime, you came from nothing, you're going nowhere, life is meaningless, you're just an evolved monkey, um, that'll affect them. If they believe there's no God, there's no eternal day of judgment, there's no right or wrong, that's going to affect them. What are their fundamental beliefs about life? Number three, how consistent is his worldview? Do you notice in the simple tools for brain surgery, you ask this atheist how he determines what's right and wrong? Well, not to do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Wait a minute, that sounds remarkably like what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't this stealing? <laughs> They're stealing lumber from our forest to bolster their worldview. Um, hmm, how consistent is their worldview? Because if they believe you came from nothing, going nowhere, life is meaningless, survival of the fittest, then... If they've got the power of you and they can just crush you underfoot, why not? Number four, what are the practical implications of his worldview? If you really believe, you should always trust what the scientific experts like Fauci have to say to you, or you're going to trust the government because the government would never lie to you and the government would never do anything to harm you. And you can trust the mass media because you know that the BBC and the CNN, they'd never lie to you. Uh, if you really believe that, where would that take you? What would the consequences be? What will this mean to me personally? If I adopt this worldview, what will the implications be for me? Now, you may not immediately know all the logical implications, but there are consequences. What will this mean for the world in general? You know, if the whole world adopted this worldview, whether you're talking about the Islamic worldview, or the Marxist worldview, or the New Age worldview, what would the results be? Specific questions. Intellectually, what does this person believe is true about himself and his place in history. Physically, how does he treat his body? How does he mistreat his body? Does he overeat, undereat, starve himself, oversleep, undersleep, overexcise, underexcise? How does he treat his body? Socially, how does he interact with friends and enemies? How does he deal with the rich and the poor, the strong and the weak? How people deal with those who are weaker than them tells you a lot about them. In fact, how people treat animals tells you a lot about them. A good man is kind to his animals, but the wicked are cruel to theirs. People who can be cruel to animals are evil, by definition. Economically, what does his motivation work? How does he spend his wages? Do they have a real work ethic? Are they providing a service to enrich your life, to benefit and bless you as a customer? Or are they just trying to extort as much money out of you as possible for the product that's going to break soon after you've bought it, like the average Chinese manufactured goods? Ethically, what moral guidelines and obligations directs us thinking about justice and righteousness? Effectively, we're in a mind siege. We've been confronted by lies of the age. Man is good by nature, just corrupted by society. Every man possesses an innate moral goodness. This is why in Hinduism, they put their hands together in an attitude of prayer and they bow to you. They bow to the God within you. Hinduism recognizes there's inner goodness in each of us. They're acknowledging deity in you. 
Happiness is the measurement and goal of our lives. Happiness. Uh, just follow your heart business. Only fools restrain their desires, they say. Well, I'd say it's very foolish to follow our desires. You follow your heart, you're going to destroy your life. The cost of obedience people talk about, actually the cost of obedience is insignificant compared to the cost of disobedience. The cost of disobedience is huge. Astronomically, infinitely worse than the cost of obedience. The cost of discipleship of following Christ is much cheaper than the cost of disobedience to God. No, only fools don't restrain their desires. Everything is relative, they say. Well, some things might be relative, but God's laws are not relative. It's always wrong to steal. It's always wrong to murder, and so on. All you need is love. Wasn't there a song by that name? Yeah. Anyway, there were some insects, beetles. There were some beetles who were singing, uh, all you need is love. And, um, well, actually, you do need a few more things than that. Only material and economic changes can produce social change. Actually, only regenerate hearts, changed minds, transformed minds can produce real change. The secular humanist says there is no God to save us. We must save ourselves. That's a direct quote from the Humanist Manifesto. Postmodernism says there's no absolute truth. We must create our own truth. And boy, are they busy doing that. The New Age thought says there is no God. I am my own God. Shirley MacLaine stood in front of the ocean being filmed shouting, I am God, I am God. Well, she isn't. But... So at first the temptation is to see mankind as God. And then it becomes us as God. The party is God. The political party. We never make mistakes. Soviet Union. That's actually a title of a book by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. We never make mistakes. Quoting the political party. Finally, it's me as God. Like Stalin. Lenin. The dictator. So the progression moves from the worship of man, the worship of us, the party, to the worship of me, the dictator of the party. In the end, all anthropologists become idolaters. Idolaters. I am God. You know, there's one of these televangelists who has the audacity to say, you know, whenever I hear Jesus say, I am, I just smile and say, I am too. That's Kenneth Copeless. Like little antichrist, they exalt and magnify themselves in the temple of their own minds. So, these are some questions David Noble organized. General choices each generation has to decide. Is Christ superior to Nietzsche? Well, obviously. Is God smarter than Karl Marx? Karl Marx was a catastrophe, disaster, you never did anything right. Is freedom better than totalitarianism? Well, compare BMW made in West Germany with the Trabant made in East Germany. Is private ownership property better than socialism? Well, compare North Korea with South Korea. Is creation better than evolution? Look at the Creation Museum and compare that with evolutionary museums. Is purpose and design superior to random chance? Do you really think the cheetah evolved? Or do you think he's designed for speed? Is truth better than falsehood? Well, Fauci obviously believed falsehood was much better. Is love better than falsehood? Is good better than evil? Is right better than wrong? Are moral absolutes better than moral relativism? Is adoption better than abortion? I think people watching the Lifemark film can come to a quick answer on that one. Is marital love better than pornography? The amount of people who avoid a real relationship with a real flesh and blood person who can love them back 
and go for this digital paper doll, are they out of their minds? What a pathetic alternative to family and life and love and marriage. Staggering. Is self-control better than loose living? Is personal responsibility better than victimization? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James 4.4 George Orwell said, During a time of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. We are revolutionaries. In fact, if you advocate living a traditional lifestyle in a normal heterosexual marriage, having children, (laughs) home educated, that is like the most revolutionary or should we say counter-revolutionary thing you can possibly do. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition rather than the principles of, on the principles of this world rather than on Christ. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. While is God, follow him. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua's answer should be ours. And this is the passage that Anthony was just presenting his last message on. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, your reasonable service. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, these are the first two chapters in your biblical worldview seminar manual that you've got. So all the text verses that I've just given you and a little bit more is on the first two chapters. Any questions or comments? Or complaints or criticisms? Contradictions, yes. Yes, now before 1917, before the Soviet Union, the Baltic Revolution, there was no country on the planet built on atheism. The first atheist country established was 1917 Soviet Union, which, as you would notice, failed on every level, collapsed. And now, 80-something percent of the people of Russia, I think it's 85 percent, are baptized members of an Orthodox Church. Very interesting turnabout. And, in fact, the head of Russia declared a Christmas truce, which, sadly, the Ukrainians did not want to follow. First time I've heard of a Christmas truce being announced by the head of state. Up till now, Christmas truce has been spontaneous on the ground, by soldiers or commanders on the ground. But uh, interesting that Russia's moved to that point, where they're no longer demolishing churches, but building churches and paying for churches to rebuild because the Soviet Union destroyed 50,000 church buildings. And now as part of the restitution, they're now printing Bibles and putting them in hotel rooms. The Russian government's printing Bibles, and they pay for it. And they've got laws against pornography and laws discouraging abortion, and uh, they have movements to encourage people to have large families. And There's a lot of things going on in Russia today that's counter what the West's doing. 
makes you wonder if the hatred of Russia is not because they used to be communists, but maybe because they're not communists anymore. And that they actually have time for Christianity, which is anathema to some people. Other comments, observations? Ryan. Yes, so most of the world, believe, especially the Eastern religions, believe in a circular view of history. Everything that has happened, has happened before and will happen again and so on and so forth. And that's reincarnation. And you'll see countries like South Korea have got, in fact, the Buddhist um, and Taoist um, model in it. Well, and of course, the uh, Hindu flag of India has also got reincarnation, samsara wheel in it. So... Uh, the circular view of history is there's nothing new. Everything just happened before. But the biblical view is linear. At one point in, in history, God created the world. At one point, he sent the flood. At one point, he sent our Lord Jesus Christ. At one point, he rose from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. At another point, he's come again to judge the living dead. We've got a view that's linear. Only one life, it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's appointed a man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. So we have a linear view of history. And this means the time is precious, valuable. You may not get this opportunity a second time. And so everything is unique. Whereas the Eastern religions, you know, if I don't get it right in this lifetime, I've got a few other reincarnations to uh, sort this out. So you don't get the same sense of urgency as you get in the Christian linear worldview. So I think it's super important to have that. And sadly, some Christians have fallen into the cyclical view, uh, which is actually Eastern paganism. Good. Other comments? Cameron. Yes, if, it, if there's nothing meaningful, then why are they getting involved? Which is a very valid... If God doesn't exist, why do you spend so much time fighting? It does seem a bit silly, doesn't it? I, think, I mean, I, I don't spend my time fighting against the Krishna or Brahma or Kali because I don't think they exist at all. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. 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 Yeah.